I hope everybody's doing well today and enjoying the holiday weekend, whatever that means to you. I'm going to speak about uh, the five aggregates in greater detail today because I find that to be a fascinating model or paradigm that helps us understand how the Buddha viewed human existence. So we have in the, in the, in the Heart Sutra, we have the, the five aggregates as well. And it's something that um, allows us to see ourselves as more than one. And the idea of being more than one, I think, is an important concept in Buddhism because it's less delusional than being one. I, when I think of one, I think of a Neo and the Matrix. He was the one, but there's only one. There's the great one. There's the missing one. There's the best one. One always has something connected to it that makes it uh, fantastic, more than two. And, and, and yet one is, is how we view the world. We look at one tree at a time or one street at a time, or one sidewalk at a time. And, and yet, it doesn't exist in that way, ultimately, only relatively. So let's go through the five aggregates, uh, beginning with form, and then we have sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. Now, the form is our body, and our body is the vehicle we use to get through this world of ours. That's, uh, it's composed of four things according to ancient uh, ideas of what the body was composed of. It was uh, earth, air, fire, and water. And because we live in the 20th century or 21st century now, we've done away with those. And now we're just simply a bunch of chemicals that are interacting with each other that create this form that we use. Now, the form aspect is, is interesting to me because it's always in a constant state of flux. You can see that for a couple of days, I haven't taken my face to the razor. Uh, but when I do, then, then the form changes and the concept about my form changes. Um, we also find that as we age, certain parts of our form tend to need a little bit of uh, help. So some of us wear glasses. Uh, I just bought some uh, computer glasses with the blue tint. So my eyes don't get quite as tired, and it has a, a, a small magnification. So the screen looks a little bit bigger when I wear my uh, computer glasses. And, and what I'm doing is I'm helping that form aspect of eye, that vision aspect. And some people have a hard time hearing as they get older. And we have hearing aids that will boost the frequency and, and the gain and, and the volume to allow them to hear at a fairly normal level again. So what we find with form is it's constantly changing. It's how we're generally identified in the world. We're seen as being tall or small, uh, overweight, underweight, a good suntan, 
in need of a suntan. So we're, we're oftentimes critiqued by the way we look. In the same way they say, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, don't judge a human by its form because there's four other aspects that come into the picture. So that's where we start with form. Form's always changing. Everything's always changing. And that's the part that we're going to investigate uh, in greater detail as well. So the next thing, form, sensation. Now we have two, three kinds of sensation, and we experience them in two ways. We have a mental sensation, and we have a physical sensation. But they're, they're both constructed using pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We, we like things that make us feel good and think they'll make us feel good. And, and we don't want things in our life that make us feel bad or make us feel worse. And we have physical and we have mental. So a, a physical uh, aspect to make us feel good might be uh, chocolate chip ice cream. That will make us feel better because we'll have a sugar rush and won't life be wonderful. A thing that may not make us feel better is broccoli or cauliflower. That may make us feel less better because we don't like the way they taste or we don't like the way they sm uh, smell. And so we find ourselves being attached to the good and we find ourselves having aversion to the bad. So we have pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations. And then we have neutral sensations. And, and to be honest with you, in thinking about this talk, I, I realize that most sensations are going to be neutral because there are just too many of them. And if we were concerned with every sensation we became aware of, we wouldn't have time to do anything else. So a great deal of our sensations don't catch our attention. But the good ones and the bad ones, the pleasant ones and the unpleasant ones do. And we've got mental and we have physical. So we have form, we have sensation, and we have perception. Perception is the third aggregate and probably the most interesting one to me because it's the naming quality. It's really what sets us apart from all other animals or life on this planet is we're able to name stuff and we're able to understand what we're naming and we're able to see it in a much different way than any other creature. So how does this naming start? Well, we have the potential at birth to name everything because we have the potential at birth to have language. And as we go through our early years, our parents have a great deal to do with giving us a vocabulary. As probably the first word we learn is mom, which makes her really happy. And maybe the second word is dad, which makes him happy. And then we might learn the word chair or table or door or glass or fork or spoon. And it continues in our early childhood of just accumulating names that we connect with certain perceptions with certain images, with certain sounds, with certain smells, with certain tastes, with certain touch or feelings. These images uh, allow us to understand the world, not only a word at a time, 
but a sentence and a paragraph and a page at a time. Now, if you've ever met a scholar who enjoys sharing their knowledge, oftentimes they won't speak in simple sentences, but they'll speak in paragraphs and pages. And, and to their delight, only four people in the audience understand exactly what they're saying because they're so smart. So I've always uh, felt that I didn't want to get that smart. I wanted to speak in sentences and paragraphs where most people understood what the heck I was saying so I could share with them my understanding or my experience of the world from a Buddhist perspective. Now, as we go through life and mature and get to be five, six, or seven years old, our parents decide it's time for us to go to school because school is an accelerated learning process. And we're going to be learning all sorts of things. We'll be able to draw lines on paper and make words, and we'll be able to read books, and we'll be able to interact with the fellow students in the kindergarten class. And all these things will start to socialize us in a very specific way and get us ready for the greater part of our life, but also the beginning of becoming somebody. Somebody training is really important. We all need to be somebody. And so this is how it starts. We go to school and we start becoming somebody. And then we go through the grades. We have kindergarten, we have first grade, second grade, third grade. And then uh, we have junior high, then we have high school, and then we have college. And as we continue to work our way through the learning process, we acquire more and more words more and more ways of looking at the world, and we start to gain our personal opinions about how things should be, how things are, and how things were. And you just look at that and going, wow, I'm in charge now of the world because I see how it could be better. I see why it's worse. And of course, I have a thousand and one opinions on every subject that I've studied and learned about and every sentence and paragraph that I've memorized. Wow, okay. Now it gets really complicated. This perception thing started out with just naming a tree. Now it's what kind of tree. And now it's the forest that the tree lives in. And it continues to go on and on and on and on. And then we start to see that our world no longer exists outside. Our world now exists inside. We are creating our world moment by moment because of what we feel, the sensations, the emotions that go along with those sensations, and what we understand to be part of the world, which is everything else. We don't think of it as an internal we think of it as an external, but it's being created internally, moment by moment, always changing, always in flux, always different from moment to moment. Okay, so perception, naming, this gives us the power to change the world, to change the direction of rivers, to build buildings that are 100 story, 200 stories tall. Now we come to form, sensation, perception, and we have volition. 
is the next one. This is the fourth aggregate. And volition is in Pali is Sankara, but an easier way to understand it for me was this is the activity aggregate. This is what we do. This is how we do it. This is why we do it. This is how we get out of our chair, get into our car, and go to the store. It's the activity aspect of the aggregates that allows us to be and interact with the world around us. It allows us to, to change our clothes, to buy new shoes, to go on vacation, to take airplanes to our vacation destination. This allows us to do everything we need to do, and this volitional aspect can be hindered by physical aspects of not being able to walk or run or move your body in the way that you used to, not be able to see or hear as well as you used to. All these will hinder our volition, our activity in the world, but we compensate, we get used to it, and, and, and somehow these restrictions tend to make us more creative rather than less creative. So a, a lot of artists will actually put um, problems of, of their art creation in place so they can find workarounds and be even more creative. Fascinating stuff. Okay, so we have form, sensation, perception, volition, and now we come to consciousness. Now, consciousness is a confusing aspect of Buddhism because it really morphed into something else as we get into later Buddhism, as we get into the Mahayana. But it started out fairly simple. Uh, the Buddha said we have six kinds of consciousness. We have eye consciousness, we have ear consciousness, we have nose consciousness, we have tongue consciousness, we have body consciousness, and we have mind consciousness. And this is often translated or looked at as a simple awareness. The, this, is, this awareness consciousness allows us then to move into sensation and perception and volition. So without this, without this general awareness of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, uh, it wouldn't work. All the aggregates work together, interconnected and interdependent, always in motion, always in flux, and always changing. So there's not necessarily one that's dominant over the other one, but they work together to create this world that we look at and consider to be our world and our specific and, and special way of interacting with it. Okay. In later Buddhism, consciousness became a much bigger deal. And if you're a meditator or if you do yoga, uh, you realize that oftentimes the consciousness as is looked at as we want to change our consciousness. We want to make it more peaceful. We want to make it more inclusive. We, we feel that if we can change our consciousness enough, that will be enlightenment. Enlightenment will be the change of consciousness. And that's not viewed in early Buddhism in that way. But in later forms of Buddhism, uh, 
consciousness is looked at as something that needs to be tweaked or fixed or made just a little different because there's there are a few things with consciousness that get into the way of our enlightenment and one might say well yes i can understand that how about the greed hatred and delusion which is oftentimes found in consciousness and doesn't that prevent you from having generosity compassion and wisdom and you would say yes so what i need to do is i need to change my consciousness and get rid of the greed and only have generosity i need to change my consciousness and get rid of the hatred and anger and only have kindness and compassion i need to change my consciousness to get rid of the delusion and ignorance that prevents me from seeing the world exactly the way it is and have clarity and mindfulness so you can see how it sort of evolved and turned into something else as buddhism became more mature and was used in mahayana buddhism connected to taoism and confucianism it really did change the view of buddhism and also i think changed the ultimate goal of buddhism uh, i'll i'll speak briefly on that so the goal of early buddhism was nirvana it was the end of suffering the end of unsatisfactoriness and 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 the buddha said it can happen in this lifetime or the next lifetime or a hundred lifetimes but it's possible to achieve the end of suffering it's possible to achieve the end of karma and it's possible to achieve the end of all future rebirths you'll never have to be reborn again to suffer like you did in this life and will in all the other lives until you achieve nirvana okay got it so for me when we came to later buddhism mahayana buddhism it it completely shifted from i'm going to achieve nirvana so i will not suffer any longer and then it went to in mahayana buddhism i'm going to help all sentient beings end their suffering before i accept my suffering and how i'll do that is i will achieve enlightenment not nirvana okay so enlightenment has many different definitions and you can pick the one you like the best but for me enlightenment is the experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena that is the enlightenment experience that i consider to be achievable in this lifetime so but what does that mean you know i i love it when people sort of just give you a definition and then let you hang with it well for me what it means is this that that we have the ability to get rid of that independent feeling that that of the observer of the critic and merge again with the ultimate reality of the universe which if you look at it as a mosaic with a bunch of different pieces connected creating all these pictures 
the enlightened person is able to pull the tree out of the mosaic, out of the tapestry. The enlightened person is able to pull the car out and the person out and have it stand independently and in an understandable intellectual way, but is also simultaneously able to see how all these things are connected. Now, can you imagine how you would feel if you understood how everything you did, how everything you saw and heard and smelled and tasted and touched was interconnected with everything else? How would that change your life? How would you act differently? How would you speak differently? How would you think differently? If everything you did, you saw the connection with everything else and the effect of everything else you had on it. Okay. Now, to be honest with you, and I think Jeannie will appreciate this. Hi, Jeannie. To be honest with you, that happened to me when I started to feed the cats. Now you may go, poo poo Kusla, how could that possibly be the case? Well, 20 or so years ago, Doug, the residential manager here, said, I'm getting really tired of feeding all the dogs and the cats and the fish and the birds. I want somebody else to do it for a while. I've been doing it for years now. And Reverend Karuna came up to me and said, Kusla, would you like to feed the cats and the dogs and the fish and the birds? I said, well, I'll be happy to do it for a while. You know, I don't see it as being such a big burden. So a, a while turned into 20 plus years. But it took me only a couple years to understand that feeding the cats was connected to having a better life. That feeding the cats was connected to good things in the world rather than bad things in the world. That that kindness and that generosity that's manifested when you feed any creature from human to bumblebee changes the way the world works. Now, Jeannie has cats and she feeds them and takes pictures of them. And as so many of my Facebook friends have cats and dogs and, and birds and pets and, and, and they do it because they like the company, because they think the little pets are cute. But behind all of that, that practice of generosity, that practice of Donna, D-A-N-A, every day, whether you want to or not, every day there's a certain hunger that needs to be satisfied with every creature on this planet. I thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice if we could feed someone or something so much that they'd never want to eat again? That would, that would get rid of the necessity of having to feed them on a daily basis. Maybe you could feed them weekly or monthly or yearly, and that would give you so much more time to do other stuff. Well, unfortunately, life doesn't seem to work that way, and hunger seems to rise every few hours for certain people, and at least every day for everybody else, that that needs to be satisfied. And that's our fuel if you will. That's our gasoline. You know, that, that if we don't eat in 30 or so days, we will die. And if we don't drink water in seven or so days, we will die. So that's been a necessity our whole life. And if we don't breathe for three, four or five minutes, we will die. 
And all those things didn't intimidate us when we were born. We said, of course I can breathe. Of course I can find water. Of course I can find food. And our parents had a whole lot to do with it in the beginning. And then that shore was shifted off to us, the kids. Okay, you have to make your own way in the world. You got to find a place to live. You got to find food to eat. And most importantly, you got to find a job so you can pay for all that stuff. Okay. And how long will I have to do that, mom and dad? You're going to have to do that for the rest of your life. Wow. What a commitment. So as I found feeding creatures uh, allowed me to, to make the world a better place, but more importantly, because I was connected to that world in a very specific way, it made me in a better place. It made me a better person. It made me a more sensitive person and a kinder person and a more generous person. And so as we look at consciousness and we see there's the eye consciousness and the ear consciousness, in later Buddhism we had this whole idea of consciousness and in some schools of Mahayana Buddhism they said the world does not exist outside at all. The whole world exists in your consciousness, in your mind. You are creating it moment by moment. You are in charge. All you need to do is have a bunch of good thoughts and you'll be living in a good world. And if you can't have a bunch of good thoughts and have a bunch of bad thoughts, you'll be living in a very uncomfortable world. So the way you perceive the world ultimately is up to you. And in our Buddhist training, in our Buddhist training, what we're trying to do, I think, is change the way we experience the world. That's it. The world is the world, and it moves in its own way, but we have the ability to interpret it in many different ways. We have the ability to experience it in many different ways. So how can you start today, Selvin says. Kusla, how can I start today? How can I start to experience the world in a different way? Well, I would say the five precepts. Number one, Selvin, when you wake up tomorrow morning, say to yourself, I'm not killing anything today. I don't care if it's a mosquito or a cockroach or a mouse or a rat. Whatever it comes in my way, I'm not going to kill it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recognize the fact that somehow, somehow it made it to earth. What the hell are the chances of all these little creatures and humans and buffaloes making it to Earth, the only planet that can support life in this way. And it found out how to get here. So we don't want to kill it. We want it to survive and thrive. And if you can figure out a way to feed them and they don't interfere with your life, your life will be so much better and theirs will too. The second thing is quit stealing stuff. You know, everybody is taking things from people. And I tell you, the, the thing I talked about last Sunday in my talk at, in Simi Valley was people love to steal time. I don't know if you've been aware of that, but they'll come up and they'll tell you the most boring stories you've ever heard because they want you to listen and feel it the way they do. 
And to be honest with you, we're all different. We all have different lives. We all have different educations. We all have different experiences. None of us are going to feel that story the way they do, but we can sympathize, we can empathize, we can support, we can be kind. But we have to be aware that people are out there wanting to steal our time. And I know Victor feels this way. As we get older, we have less and less time to give away. Everything becomes important. We get up early, we stay up late, we get all the stuff done because we don't know how many more days we have before we won't have any more days. Now, I don't know if you're into graveyards and cemeteries, but Hollywood Graveyard is one of my favorite YouTube channels. And the guy walks through all these cemeteries and does a whole background of the, of the grave, the person that's in the grave. And there were so many stars buried here in Los Angeles, so many famous and important people buried here in Los Angeles from the 20s and the teens up to today. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, they're all dead. <laughs> you know, they made millions of dollars. They were famous. Everybody knew their name. And now nobody knows where they are. And one of the weirdest experiences I had this week was doing the, uh, the graveyard thing on YouTube and Richard Burton's graveyard. Richard Burton. Man, he married Elizabeth Taylor twice. He made some of the best movies. He was a renowned actor and he was rich and famous. And he has a little grave that's buried way, way far away underneath these trees. Nobody's ever going to go there. It's just, it's, it's just too darn far away. And it's in, I think it's in a different country, if I'm not mistaken. And I thought, wow, such an important life. And we all have the same ending. So don't let people steal your time. It's not worth it. You got stuff to do. You got places to go. You got people to be, not to see. Okay. Now, the third one is no sexual misconduct. And this is tough because we live in L.A. And everybody is desirable in L.A. But you know what? It will not change your life in a better way. It's going to make your life so much more complicated. And it's going to have so much more drama. And it's not going to end well. And it's only going to cost you money and time. So just, you know... Practice a discipline that allows you to go into various circumstances and, and feel not indifferent, but have equanimity, have that perfect balance of mind. Let somebody else do all that stuff. You got things to do. You're working on enlightenment or nirvana. You don't have time to mess around. And if you find a partner, Make sure that they want enlightenment and nirvana too so you can work together and you can share that journey and share that final destination and goal. Okay, number four, speak skillfully. No harsh speech, critical speech, you know, uh, lying, opinions, oh, opinions. You know, I, I love my opinions, but I realize they're simply my opinions. And they will not affect anybody in the way they affect me. So I try not to share them. I made a, a terrible mistake with speech last Sunday in Simi Valley. A guy comes up to me and he's talking about how it's going to be streamed over the Internet. 
He says, we're going to stream your talk in three different ways. We're going to have YouTube, we're going to have Facebook, and we're going to have something else, he said. Their own streaming service. And it's all going to go out, and there are so many people who are going to see it. And what did I say? Uh, and once you say it, you can't take it back. I said, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be famous. And he just turned his back and walked away. <laughs> like, I'm thinking, now why did I say that? Well, I thought it would be funny. But you know what the problem is when you try to be funny with a mask on? They can't see your face. They can't see you smile. They can't see you sort of, you know, being a jerk but doing it in a fun way. They can't see anything. All they see is a face. It's like reading a transcript. It takes all the emotion and fun out of the joke. So I've decided that if I'm wearing my mask, I'm not going to be funny because I'm not funny. Okay, number five, don't get intoxicated. Don't get high. You know, it's, it just makes life fuzzy and less clear, and you have less enthusiasm about things. And, and it just doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. So the idea is we got to strive for clarity every day, every moment. And if you're in a social situation where you're having a little wine or you're having some beer or that, you know, moderation. What did the Buddha say? He said, I teach the middle path. I teach two beers, not 10 beers. And that's what we got to sort of stick with. We got to stay in the middle, not too much, not too little. We don't want, if we don't drink at all, people will be suspicious of us. What's wrong with him? Why isn't he drinking? If we drink too much, they'll go, well, I know what kind of guy that guy is. You know, so we want to be in the middle. Keep them guessing about our sobriety. Don't just come out and say, I'm a teetotaler. You know, you're going to turn off a lot of people because they like to drink. But don't be a drunk because that doesn't work either. So can you just have one beer and sip it for eight hours through the party? Probably. And you can maybe refill it with ginger ale or something. And then people won't pick up on the fact that you're trying to be sober and trying to have a life filled with clarity and compassion. Yes, clarity and compassion. They work well together. So in looking at the five aggregates, I think what we're doing is we're starting to say, okay, this is how I am explained in Buddhism this is how I can look at myself and not have to get deluded with thinking I'm one or I'm the one or I am the only one, which will not get you very far in this world of seven billion people. So the idea is to use it to enhance your practice, to make your, make your Buddhist practice a little better because you have a different understanding of what it means to be you. Okay. I think that's it. I think I've said all the words I need to say. So does anybody have any questions or comments on what I've said and how I've said it? Selvin, how about you? Any comments, Selvin? Um, I actually did have one a question, but then you answer it. Um, if you reach enlightenment, can you lose it? It is possibly that it's true, and you regain it back by doing the five precepts all over again, following. 
Well, now, that's an interesting statement. That's, that's more of a statement than a question. And in, in Zen Buddhism, they say there's different kinds of enlightenment. Okay, there's momentary enlightenment. And, and momentary enlightenment can happen at a retreat. You've been sitting for a weekend, and all of a sudden, you know, the flash of light, <clears throat> you understand how the world works, and then they ring the gong, and you forgot everything. But you had that moment, okay? You had that moment. It went away. You can capture it again. They have longer kinds of enlightenment that might last for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and they have permanent enlightenment that will, that will last until you die. But I don't think enlightenment is nirvana. I, I think it's two different things. And, and so when you achieve enlightenment, what you've seen is the possibility. And I think that's just an amazing experience. And, and if you've seen the possibility, you have a much better chance of being free. Because you're not stuck in just one reality. You're not just stuck in the relative reality of your everyday life. You know, what you've seen now is you've touched the ultimate reality that's available to all of us because we make it up. All the things that are interconnected and interdependent make up, according to me, this sort of ultimate reality. And you've tapped into it even for a moment, even just for a few moments. So you realize you're never stuck. You're never stuck again by looking at life in just one way. You have an option now. And that option allows you to have a much freer sense of what it means to exist on this planet Earth. So you're right. So there's momentary, you forget it, you get it again. There's, there's longer and there's permanent. And, and, and all that stuff, of course, is just in the models that people have written down. And none of us know exactly because none of us have achieved it as far as I know. But it's, it's the kind of thing that, for me, allows me to have possibilities in life. You know, there's nothing worse than just looking at your life as, as just going to play out and you'll be in the grave, you know. And, and there's so many different possibilities available to us if we understand or know that to be the case. If we can see it or other people have told it. <laughs> anyway. Hi, Jeannie. You want to say something? Yes. Lately, you know, I know you were saying we should have positive thoughts, but when you wake up in the morning and and most everyone around me is talking about the world's going to end because what we've done to it and we're the last generation of freedom, of just all kinds of stuff. That's what I hear every day. It's really hard to think positively. So what do you think about people are saying the climate change is going to ruin the world, it's going to end soon, and it goes on and on. Every day I hear it. And then when you hear the news of the fires and the floods and the uh, Afghani, everything like that, it's just, it's, and then your friends dying, I mean, 12 people died this year, it kind of gets to be hard to be positive, you know? Yeah. So what is do we just forget about all this? Do we say the world's perfect? I mean, not perfect, but it's going to go on and on. Don't think that way or whatever. You see what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying. And the Buddha said uh, that uh, there are three realities that we need to deal with. And, and these three realities are Nietzsche, Dukkha, Anatta. And the first reality is everything changes all the time. So, of course, the world's going to end. But uh, we're not going to see it. 
we're not going to be here, you know. It's going to end a really long time from now. Uh, There's nothing apocalyptic about Buddhism. If you look at certain forms of Christianity, the apocalypse keeps coming up all the time. But in Buddhism, it, it doesn't. It, what the Buddha said everything changes all the time. And, and when this world finally grows ice because the sun burned out, uh, there'll be another world. And it, it, so something will continue. The flow will continue. But certain aspects of the flow have to be left behind for the new flow to occur. And the new flow and the old flow are simply the same flow that keeps changing and is in a constant state of flux. So when people keep telling you that, you have to say to them, well, of course, of course things are going to change. Of course people are going to die. Of course it's never going to stay the same. Of course we're going to have horrific global weather and fires and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes. But you know what, Jeannie, we always have. We have now the ability to share those experiences over the internet, over the radio, over TV, and take you right there and interview people who are going through the worst days of their life, you know? And, and we don't want to say, I'm glad it's not me. That's, that's not compassion or empathy. What we want to say is, well, yes, those things happen. Now, what do we do about it? Well, we rebuild, or we move, or we have bigger levees, or we have larger dams. We keep adjusting the world in the same way we adjust our sight and our hearing when it starts to go bad. That's the ability humans have, which is really amazing. And it comes out of the five aggregates. You know, we, we can see things, we can change things, <clears throat> we can do things to make a difference. But we shouldn't ever just sit there like a victim because we have so many more abilities than that. We have a vision for the future. You know, we're going to, apparently if, if Congress changes, you know, or okays the money for our infrastructure, we're going to rebuild the infrastructure and make it better than it was when it was first built. We can do that. But at some point, at some point, it's just going to end. And everything does. And that's one of the reasons life is unsatisfactory. Because the good stuff ends and the bad stuff continues. That's the Anicca thing. That's what the Buddha talked about. The second thing he said, Dukkha, this life we have is basically unsatisfactory. Which is not which is not pessimistic, it's realistic. It's unsatisfactory because we have the ability to see things in a way that they could be better and don't have to be as bad. And all we have to do is change a few things. We're the only animal that can do that. The beaver or the fox looks at the world and sees the world. We see possibilities in the world. So we have dukkha, the suffering that occurs because of all the things that keep changing and we don't have control over. And then finally, this idea of not-self, that we're not there. We're not there in the way we think we are. We're not in charge. Nobody's in charge. The earth, the universe is a rudderless ship. 
that just goes its own way. And we're on board and we're screaming, look out for the iceberg, look out for the iceberg. (laughs) And there's nobody to hear us because we don't exist and they don't exist in the way we think we do. So the Buddha warned us, you know, don't get too attached. Don't get too attached to wanting the world to be a perfect place to live because it never will be. And then one day we'll all be like Richard Burton in a marked grave that nobody's ever going to look at again. And you're going to go, wow, look at all the stuff I did and it's forgotten by generations and generations. And that's sort of how it's supposed to be. It's always been that way. So if you get a chance, go visit some cemeteries because it really adds perspective. You'll get up a little earlier, you'll stay up a little later because you see how it has to end for everything and everyone. Not just humans dying, we're talking planets and whole civilizations and cosmologies. All these things die and change and turn into something else. And that's why there's this sort of underlying sadness to our human existence. Because we're not like the animals. We, we, the animals don't understand it. We're not like the gods either. The gods, small gs, they never have to die. We know we're going to die and there's nothing we can do about it. And we know everything we like, cherish, and want to hold on to will be taken away from us. And there's nothing we can do about it. So this underlying sadness can be transformed by enlightenment, which gives us a whole lot of stuff to do, and nirvana, never having to suffer again, never having to be reborn again, never having to go through this again. So just agree with those people, because they're right, Jeannie. Yes, it will all end. We just don't know when. (laughs) And when they start telling you when, like, okay, you know, sell your stocks, sell your house, because it's going to happen next Thursday. Then you got to walk away. Just say, no, I, I got other stuff to do. I'm going to Las Vegas. <laughs> I'm not going to stay around for that. 